welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 4 Rowing Around Imrama. Episode 1 Imra Bran McFevel. The Otherworld Apple Branch. It was just a branch from an apple tree. It lay there beside him on the ground, shining silver in the sea-washed sunlight. Ron sat up, He stretched his arms, flexed his fingers. Oh, what a dream that had been. The music, sweet, unearthly. It had followed him as if he looked alone on the sharp-grassed dunes. Oh, yes, it was that strange and haunting music. It had always been behind him as he walked. He'd been unable to see who was making those thrilling sounds. Couldn't discover where it was coming from. But it had entranced his senses like an exotic perfume made him dizzy and steady on his feet. The air was bright, fresh, and he could hear the summer singing of birds above him. The dream was turning to mist in his head, and yet fronds of its perfume still clung about his memory. Oh, that music! It made the bird song sound raucous and harsh. Brown yawned again and then stood up. Oh, what had he been doing lying down anyway? I mean, how had he come to fall asleep on the grass here? Hadn't he been waiting for news or something? Well, no time to sleep anyway. A fresh wind blew and he shivered suddenly. His head cleared. It hadn't been a dream. That music had been true, had been reality, sending him reeling into sleep. Bran took a step forward and felt something move at his feet. There was an echo of the music, like distant bells and a remembrance of subtle perfume. He looked down. The apple branch from his dream was there, lying on the ground. It hadn't been a dream. Brown bent down and picked up the branch, turning it over in his hands. Oh, it had come from no tree in this world. The bark was silver, but so fine and finished that no smithcraft of his world could have honed it so. Brown gently probed the silver surface with his thumbnail. It yielded to his slow pressure, leaving the crescent of his nail marked on the curve of the twig. Curiously, he scratched at the dent he had made, and flakes of silver bark fell to the ground. The wood was a soft, dull silver underneath. Carefully, he stroked one of the shining leaves, and it flexed at his touch. He admired the veining, the patterning, the spearhead shape, and allowed his finger to brush the edge serrations. Oh, such making was well beyond the craft of man, any man. And the blossoms. The branch had been taken from a tree in bloom. Gently he pinched one of the blushing white flowers, and it bruised beneath his fingers. Brown shook his head in disbelief. No crafter in silver, however talented, could have grafted living flowers onto metal. Carefully he shook the bright branch, wondering if the petals would fall and the haunting strains of the remembered music 
danced around him for a moment, and he felt the power of the perfume mazing his mind again, leaving him quiescent and wondering. It is a gift, thought Brian to himself. It is a great gift from the other world. He gently shook the branch again, and this time he thought he heard words sung to the rhythm of the leaf-silver music. A branch of the apple tree from Avon I bring, like those one knows. Twigs of white silver are on it, crystal brows with blossoms. Brown walked back to the fort, deep in thought. This gift from the other world might be a two-edged sword. The ever-living ones gave nothing without purpose, and such gifts always heralded change, maybe even trouble. Yet the silver branch he held in his hands was a wonder. It called to him, drew him towards his secrets, and he knew that he could not, could not cast it away. Brown looked up and he smiled, taking in the tang of the salt air on the breeze. There was a new spring to his stride. This had been no dream. He was ready now for the adventure that lay before him. Well, welcome to our brand new series, which is all about the Imrama or Imrova, depending on how you like your... Uh, consonants <laughs> well yeah well at least we get to dig in a really special story site this time oh yeah it's a holistic tale type yeah exactly and it's a nice neat little trench which is great for us there are four surviving extant tales within the the emerald type um but plenty to explore oh yeah there's still loads of different variety within that don't worry yeah but what is this look what, I mean, what is an imrov or, or imrama or imrova that's the plural isn't it it is yeah um and the reason why it's sometimes pronounced as imrova in the plural is because it comes from im which means around and then rova which is rowing so it's rowing around <laughs> Strange term, really. It is, and um, my old professor Damien McManus uh, thought that it had a sort of a slightly pejorative uh, edge to it. Just, you know? just mucking around. Yeah, just mucking around in boats. Mucking, messing around in boats. You exactly, know. So yeah. rowing around, well, rowing around nowhere in particular, or is it having the specific and uh, specific skill of efficiently steering steering a boat in circles? <laughs> I suppose that would be useful in a boating lake. It would. It's it's largely the former, but there might be some of the latter in there as well. <laughs> um, what's important about the Imrov is that uh, they are rowing without a set destination. So yeah, yeah. it's definitely that kind of wandering sense to it. So sort of um, distinct from the Ectra then, like the stories of Cormac and Nera, because they also make visits to the other worlds. Yes, they do. But they set out deliberately, like you said. The Imrov... They're often, um, they can be a kind of a punishment or some kind of penance, um, and they're definitely undirected. So Ruard in the Inveralbina, Alvina that we looked at yeah. fairly recently, that's not classed as an Imrov. No, even though he is going over the sea, even though he does find this weird and mystical island in the middle of it, his journey is purposeful. He's set out to Norway to see his friends and he comes back again to okay. Ireland. But what about other class of tales, like the, uh, the about journeys, the longest? Yeah, they're, they're, uh, a longest literally means a sort of boat journey uh, from long as a ship, you know, yeah. like Norse loanwork. But um, <clears throat> they're more specifically exile stories. Okay. So where people have been sent 
out of Ireland as of an Get exile. Get out of Ireland now. Yes. Um, and, and go across the sea. Well, I suppose you'd have to, really. Well, exactly, yeah. That's the only way to get out of Ireland is over the sea. Um, but those would be tales like the Langus um, Clinnushlin, which is the Sons of Ushlu. That's uh, yeah, yeah. Nisha and uh, Deirdre when they have to go up to Scotland. They have to run away to Scotland. Exactly, they, yeah. yeah. Now, there's also the Langus Clinnushlin, which is the We've done that Sons, one, of the Sons of Turin. Sons of Turin. And exactly. they have to go out of Ireland. They are deliberately exiled. Exactly. They? And they can't come back again until they've got all of this all these impossible uh, tasks that Lewis set for them so really exile journeys mm. are, are journeys to prescribe places mm. whereas the Imrama as you said earlier are journeys without a definite expected outcome exactly yeah and yeah. even the children of Turin their, their outcome is to bring back certain exactly places. even if they are sort of set up to be impossible tasks or tasks that will yeah. kill them it still is purposeful yeah, and uh, so when they have to go and get things mm -hmm. and come back, yeah. it's not an Imran. No, Imran. No, it's more like a quest. You know, it's interesting. Uh, earlier, a few weeks ago, I was watching, and not for the first time, mm. Michael Wood's excellent series on the on Anglo-Saxon England. Yeah, it's a fantastic. Oh, it's... All Michael Wood series are brilliant. But this one is... any of exactly. Them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but the, he was talking about Athelstan's guilt in when he set his rebellious brother adrift in a rotten boat without oars. Mm. And I know Michael Wood was saying that it was a really odd punishment mm. and how strange this is. And then later in the programme he said that he'd actually, he was really pleased with himself when he said that he, he'd found out that this was a known punishment under Irish law. Yeah, I was delighted with him as then well. he actually bothered to go and find out something about Ireland. Well, yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's it's... Obviously, Irish studies are quite minority. So, yeah, when anyone kind of outside the field actually has a clue about them, it's Having always very Having said that, delightful. when he was talking about Troy, which is a very early one in mm -hmm. the series, he actually came to Ireland to actually look at storytelling. Yes. And how central it is to uh, history. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, so he does have... Ten ten. Exactly, yeah, yeah, we, we approve. Um, we approve. <laughs> but, yeah, I was sort of jumping up and down when he said, oh, wasn't this a, a, a set punishment in early Irish law? In some ways, it's the closest thing that we have to a death penalty in the native law yeah, system. Yeah. But it's not a deliberate putting to death. Now, there's a couple of interesting features about it as a punishment. And it is one of the most extreme punishments that you mm -hmm. can do. One of them is that uh, when the boat is set adrift without oars, it has to be sort of out of sight of the land. It has to be far enough out into the sea so that you can no longer see a white shield on the shore. Mm -hmm. Um, now, I think that might also have some um, something to do with the boundaries of a seaside tooth, that maybe it extends as far as you can still see the yeah. land. So it might have that as well. Uh, but part of the sort of idea, if you like, of this as a punishment is that it doesn't necessarily lead to death. Because if the um, punishee washes up in a different tooth, mm -hmm. Then they have outsider status. So in a different tribal grouping. Yes, it means they have really no legal status whatsoever. It's the sort of a coup glass um, position. But they don't get extradited back to their own clan and no. they don't get put to death. No, they are foundling and they're treated as such and they can still sort of work and so and on. And they can rise again within that new... With, uh, yeah, only group. within some generations though. Yeah. And it's hard work, but it, it means the that... three generations. Yeah, though, yeah. It? It's kind of a death of status, if you like, you know, and it is, I think, about the most extreme that you get in the native legal system. I know uh, Michael Wood was saying that it might be a very apt punishment for, you know, it's a way of treating kin. Mm. So that you're not you're not actually indulging in fratricide. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Would that also yeah I be mean, relevant under Irish law? Yeah, because kinslaying was you know the the most heinous crime because 
you know, reparation for a crime had to be paid to the family of the victim. You can't um, do that within a family. Exactly, yeah. And so that, that has always caused legal difficulties. And so this kind of setting adrift, because, again, you know, death penalty also has those problems where yeah, someone yeah. is then wrongfully killed. Um, so this does kind of set Gets around, around it, yeah. doesn't it? And it's almost like an execution of someone's sort of status, someone's position, and then they have to start again as a non-person. Do you know what mm, I mean? Mm, and kind mm. of build it up again. Well, it's interesting. That's the, see, it's it's very little known about in the English. Mm, mm. The fact that this was so, you know, Athelstan was actually continued stayed with a level of guilt. Yeah. He'd obviously got the idea. Exactly. Yeah. Um, possibly, well, most likely from Irish. Yes. Maybe. Yeah, or the related, related legal systems in Wales or Scotland. Yeah. Possibly. I'm not sure. Mm. I really don't know mm. whether it's uh, a punishment under Welsh or no uh, idea or, or Scottish law. No idea. Um, what I do know is it is interesting that that the story of Joseph of Arimathea oh, yeah. also follows the same pattern. Yeah. There's, a, there's this old legend which seems to uh, it, it's been a long-lasting legend that after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, so they say, all the people who were gathered around him, including uh, all the Bethany group, you mm-hmm. know, Mary, Martha, um, who else was there? Lazarus, of course, because mm-hmm. he was back alive again then. Of course. Uh, there was, long, better, there was yeah. the centurion at the foot of the cross. Yeah. There was uh, uh, Mary Magdalene, yeah. several other Marys mm-hmm. and their servants, mm-hmm. and Mary, the mother of Jesus yes. as well. They put them all into a boat without oars, mm-hmm. not as some translations give it a bifurcated shirt, or a bifurcated line. I think that's something to do with the Latin. I think in a... even Whitley Stokes and Eugene O'Curry aren't that bad a translation. <laughs> We're dealing with Latin here, not early Irish. Yeah. And they put them all into the boat and set them adrift without yes. oars. And they landed there in the south of France in the Camargue. Come and on. you get the stories coming up through the Rhone Valley. Mm. Uh, and it's really odd the way the stories are spread out. Yeah. The final one is so, so called that Joseph Arimathea arrived in England, mm. pretty landed at Priddy and so forth and he brought he supposed to brought Mary with him mm. now obviously these are all legends exactly yeah but it's surprising how it's the same situation mm. that they don't actually want to kill them yeah but they have to get rid but of them but they all want the same. to definitely get rid of them mm. so it's doesn't just exist in the Irish either. no no absolutely not and you know you can see how any sort of seaside culture the sea is the ultimate wilderness, you know, and that beyond the horizon is the ultimate unknown, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, I think, a lot of what we're dealing with in these stories. As we were just saying, that that's, this is an important aspect of the Imrov, is that the, it can be a journey of penitence or of punishment. And, you know, some of the Imrov stories are deliberately set that way. Journeys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, they do also have something in common with the story of Gelti, which are the, the madmen, or the greatly famous one of course is Swifna Gelt um, Mad Sweeney. Disappear off into the wilderness places. Exactly and it's all about being in the wilderness and being outside of society and outside yeah, yeah. of you know accepted norms and indeed in one of our Imrava in the journey of the Ikora there is a fool a madman who joins their boat and in fact he strips off stark naked we'll meet him later but that there is if you like, an edge to these Imrova of the kind of the, the journeys of the Gelt. The outsiders, the madmen, the one yeah. who basically either choose to go outside yeah, or, or lose it and end exa- up outside. Exactly, yeah, yeah. The other thing about the Imrova is that they do have a quality of a dreamscape. Oh, yeah. Quite surreal, mm-hmm. um, almost like visions. Yes, and in fact, there's a story which I think is kind of a parody 
on the Imrov stories. And so that's a spoof Imrov. A spoof Imrov, yeah. And that's Ashling McCunglener. It's McCunglener's oh, yeah. vision. And this is great fun. I mean, go and read any translation you like. It is oh, hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And essentially, it's this vision that McCunglener has of a journey to the other world. It's kind of like his own little Imrov. But everything is centred around food and gluttony. I think it has to do with punishing a king for being greedy. That mm-hmm. kind of a thing. But, you know, I, I have a feeling that the sea he crosses there is it's either a sea of cream or a sea of butter or something like that. <laughs> you know, but it is... Well, that makes sense of a land of milk and honey. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's all rather literal in that one. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, but I think that it is, it's like you say, a spoof on the Imrov form, you know, so it has that kind of visionary fantasy quality. Especially if um, the earlier ones have had this quality of the sort of thing that monks would like. You oh, know, yes. This, uh, a contemplative, after all, like to explore landscapes of the mind. Exactly. These Imrov, they're also about unknown territory and wilderness and the very edge of wilderness. I mean, after all, just look at some of the sites yes. that the monks actually chose for their uh, their communities. Well, islands were their first choice, weren't they? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, not all of them. You do have some which are, you know, within the nice plain of Meath and loads of rolling pasture. But then you get the uh, Dunebeg and the Skelligvichel. Inish Murray or yeah. Sligo as well. They did like these wild places. What about where we were looking at earlier on, the Inish Clothran? Exactly, yeah. Even that, even though that's more inland. But it's still an island, still an, an ancient island. and secret and somewhat cut-off island. Exactly, yeah. By its, just its storage. Yes, but you, you can't really get more extreme, I think, than the Skelligs. Oh, extreme monasticism. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's the great sport of the period. Exactly. Extreme monasticism. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, go and find a rock in the middle of the Atlantic that's almost impossible to climb up. Preferably a pointy one. Exactly. Very pointy one. Fight off the birds for the tiny amount of moss <laughs> and find you can a eat. very, very small place to build a garden. Exactly. Oh, the best place is, best place, I think, the most fun, the exciting place you can ever visit is Skellig Michael. Yeah. Off yeah. the Kerry Ring, off the, off the coast there. Yeah. And in fact, it was as far as they could go. Exactly. After yeah. that, there was nothing more. Until America. the other world yeah. or America. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you've got two little islands mm. that you can, even today, with motorboats, yeah. you can only get there in good weather because exactly. otherwise you can't land. Yeah. And once you finally land on this bobbing rock, having been washed to bits on the boat, mm. uh, I mean, I've been there twice and only managed to land once, yeah. and both times were in the summer. Mm. And uh, finally, when you get onto the rock, you've got to climb up 200 steps, which are between 7th and 11th century. They left Mm. there in the 11th century. And these wonderful beehive huts. Yeah, yeah. And yet, somewhere in the middle, there's a little sort of sun track. Mm. But even if you go higher, you can go right up to this point, and there is a little hermitage at the top. Yeah, yeah. It's just incredible the way they live there. I know. And it is astonishing. Like, it's, it's one thing to visit it, but it is astonishing to imagine a community of people actually surviving long term, mm. you know, actually going out there to live. They didn't have the helipad, which is put no. on there for emergencies. They yeah. didn't have any sort of, there was no pipe water. No, no. There's nothing. Yeah, exactly. Just cisterns and rain. Yeah, yeah. It's our, it's our version of the desert, really, of going out and sitting on a pole in the desert for 500 years, you know. Only colder. Yeah, exactly. And wetter. <laughs> So I suppose, really, it's not surprising that the landscape of the unconscious, mm. like dreamscape, would appeal to these uh, sportsmen, these extreme <laughs> monastic athletes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But one thing I do want to say before mm. we go any further is that these Imrama are definitely not any sort of lost book of the dead. Well, no. And in fact, in Kuna Meyer's edition of this tale we're looking at today, the Imrama of Bran McFevil, 
Um, he actually calls it the journey of Bran to the land of the living. Well, that's one of the best-known names exactly. of the other world, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So it is, it's not quite an afterlife. Along there with Tin and Oaks, mm. or, or the, the Isle, Isle of the Young, or, or the, land yeah. of the, the Isle of Apples, mm. it's also the land of the living. Exactly. The Imrova are more like a contemplative paradigm of ways to behave in certain situations. And in fact, they do tend towards becoming allegorical. Yeah, yeah. We will discuss that more as we go through the different Imrova. Yeah, if we got into that now, I think we'd just be lost. I know, yeah. yeah. Somewhere rowing around out there. Exactly. <laughs> but the texts, especially the poetry, they are, aren't they, contemporary? Poraneous, if I can say that word today, <laughs> with the sagas. But there's sort of more Christian content than with the Ectora. Yeah, I mean, if if you compare um, our Imrov uh, Brahmacvabel, which where the poetry is as early as 7th century, and then you have other 7th, 8th centuries tales like the Ectra Nera. Yeah, yeah. You know, Nera just has no sense of any kind of Christian um, ideology within it. But the Imrov are very much both Christian and non-Christian elements combined. Yeah, and this is particularly interesting. Mm. We'll go, which are our, um, what are the four dig sites we're exactly. going to get into? Yes, the four tales that, you know, they appear in the tale lists and we still have good copies of them today. We've got Imrov Bramacfell, we have One today. One we're going to do today. Yeah. Then we've got the Imrov Snedgus August MacRiegla. Um, then there's the Imrov of the Ikora, mm -hmm. and the last one we're going to be looking at, which is Big one. the longest and um, one of the best, most varied, which is the Imrov Mwailden. That's fascinating. Great it's fun. a great one. Yeah, so those are our four nice and easily It's interesting because there are other stories mm. that would, I think we can use to compare, I know they're not Imrov, Imrama, mm. but things like Cormac's Journey to the Land of Promise, yeah. one of my favourite stories. Of course. And uh, Oshin and Neve and and very well known. I yeah. hate this story. Uh, yes, you do hate this story. <laughs> <laughs> but that one is particularly has much in common it does. with the Bran McFevel story that we're looking at today. Um, for example, it has to do with the, the hero, the named hero, finding another world mate. And once they've gone with that other world mate, they then can't return to Ireland. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, he gets realized. And he ends this. up on that island whether yeah. he wants to or not. Yeah. And it's Neve, the way she treats him, I mm. think is selfish and yeah. horrible. And. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, right. Exactly. Well, the uh, oh, she's everybody George. loves the story, and I it, don't see it. It has this very sad ending. I think Bran has more of a happy ending. It I, does. I think he he actually listens to what his other world mate tells him and and believes it. Well, I don't you know. know. I, mean, I think she tricked him over there. It's almost yeah. you know, and he, he all the uh, Fianna are waiting for him, mm -hmm. and he's just torn away. Yeah, you're talking about Oshin, and I'm talking about Bran. All right, yeah, I'm that's why I said. Yeah, exactly. Bran, sorry, is a oh, bit clever. <laughs> Yes, I'm sorry like if you story. like the story, but I've, I've always had, when we finally, finally get to talk about yeah. Fionn, I think I'll be able to say more about why it yeah. is I react badly to that story. Exactly, but. yeah. She's as bad about that as I am about Maeve, so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> forgive our rant. Yes, I've got a picture of it, a, a cut, cut out of mirrors I, I made mm. in my bathroom, mm. and you know, he looks as though she's drowned in yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't mean it to end up that way, I just did. Anyway, let's yeah. get back to this. Exactly. Um, what I wanted to talk about was Cormac again. Mm. The way that I think the interesting thing about Cormac is that mm. whereas uh, neither Oshin or Bronn can mm. come back, they're yeah. stuck out there. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's Cormac on the other hand. I mean, he actually survives yeah. and he comes back. 
and even more uniquely, comes back with something. He comes yeah. back with a cup of truth. Yeah, which is quite unusual, definitely. I mean, you usually can't bring physical items back with you yeah. when you visit to the other world. Yeah, you can I mean, bring the sort of the lesson, if you like. Um, I think about any of the fun mm, fairy tales. Mm, you know, fairy gold will yeah. turn to dead leaves in the morning. Exactly. And this is part of the prohi- prohibition about eating and drinking. Yeah. It, it traps you there. Like the, the version of Cullen Whale that you tell. Oh, yeah. Yes. Is that the the food and drink turns into you know what they are in this world, which is you know slugs, uh, snails, yeah. filthy water, exactly, moss, yeah, yeah, that, exactly, all that stuff. yeah. Uh, he ends up, by the way, with a sheepskin stuck to his back, and of it's course. a great story. <laughs> yeah, but let's get back to Cormac. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he actually comes back with a cup of truth. Now mm. I know it's all it's a sort of allegorical story about it does have, and yeah. so forth. But I'm tr- just trying to think. I mean, yes, there's. Uh, Oh, I mean, like Malinan's gifts that he gives to Lou yeah. or stuff like the crane skin bag. Mm. I mean, that gets brought back, but it sort of gets deposited here by another world character. Yeah. And it's almost like you can't steal it from the other world. Exactly. And there's always this idea that it still belongs to the other world, yeah. that it still belongs to Malinan. He's kind of left us around for the use of very special people yeah. but that it doesn't it can't stay here forever i always get that sense anyway well maybe that's what the cup is that, mm. that actually fits with that, that yeah that he's given that to cormac yeah to teach him a lesson and he leaves it here for a while yeah and my story when i finish that story I would say well the the apple you know after cormac's time the apple branch and the cup disappears mm. and maybe they're still out there and Maybe one of you will find them. Yeah. But of course, that's not true. Well, no. <laughs> no, we can see now. Yeah. Sorry, they've gone back again. Yeah. Well, particularly the apple branch. I mean, it's very clear in the Brown story that the apple branch is only temporary. Oh, we'll come to that We later. will come to that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and even when Nira has a branch to, to bring back just to prove that he's been somewhere else, he has a flowering branch. So now we know that that branch probably disappears as yeah. well. It's only there for that moment. Exactly. Yeah. We better get back to the Imrama rather than yes, talking yes. about the other world. Exactly. So to sum up. Yes. Uh, well, our Imrov journeys, they consist of a visit to a series of strange and wonderful islands. Some of these islands come up repeatedly in different Imrov mm. stories, like the Island of Joy and the Island of Women, both of which we're going to meet today. They do come up again. And in fact, even in the Imrov, the Kura, they very consciously refer back to the story of Mwildzun, when they meet this giant silver fishing net in the sea. It says in the text, this is the same one that Weldon met. Okay, yeah. Well, anyway, we'll be taking each Imrov in turn. Yeah. One in each episode. Yes, yeah. Seems best. And then afterwards, look back at the common points. Exactly, yeah. We will sort of, once we've finished looking at the individual texts, we'll offer some observations, some possible interpretations, uh, you know. Just have a bit of fun with it. Exactly, and, and just play around with some of the common ideas that we pick up on, but not until we've actually covered the stories themselves. Okay, so let's begin with our first somewhat watery trend. Yes, <laughs> the Imra of Bran McFarwell. It all starts with the finding of the apple branch, you know, the story that I told at the beginning of this episode. Well, not quite. It actually starts with the appearance out of nowhere. Being pedantic. Of course, that's my job. Uh, The appearance of this otherworld woman in the middle of the court while Bran and all of his mates are having a feast, as Mm -hmm. you do all the time. And she's appeared there in the middle of the house and what do you know, all the ramparts are closed. How did she get in? What a mystery. And then she proceeds to chant 50 quatrains at them all about the other world. To be even more pedantic, (laughs) it's actually only 28 quatrains. It is, and um, that's probably no bad thing for, for our purposes. Yeah. She gives us a great description of the other world, though. She does, and I will put up the whole lot 
on the blog afterwards. But in the meantime, let's just have a look at some of our favourite ones. Yeah, even if it's 28, it's a bit of a lengthy task to go through the lot. Yeah, yeah, we wouldn't put so, our listeners through um, that. Let's pick out, we'll, we'll pick and choose. Yeah. You. Be a bit picky. Yeah. Uh, first, that apple branch. I want one. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be able to shake the apple branch and uh, just, you know, stop Shut everyone up? Well, not quite. You know what I mean. <laughs> just get my way now and again. Mm-hmm. What is ding, 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 ding. Oh, that's fine. Just have what you want. Yeah, it'd be great. Wouldn't mm-hmm. it? But um, the description that I put into the opening story, yeah. a branch of the apple tree from Evan I bring, like those one knows, twigs of white silver on it, Crystal brows with blossoms. Mm. Yeah. Gorgeous. This, this implies that the apple branch is a familiar motive to the audience, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and I think that it, it might even be like the attention-getting staff that we met in the story of Brick Crew. Um, remember I said that they had a big silver stick beside them and that they could shake it to get the attention of the court. Yeah, and it's very much like the one, even more like the one that Cormac get, oh, yeah. gets, it gets given to persuade him to come over to the land of, uh, what, the oh. Malinan's Isle. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's actually the Isle of Apples. Yeah, one, isn't yeah, Evan Abbruch, yeah. And uh, that one's described as, um, it has silver leaves and golden apples, so it's mm. a different time of year in the other world. <laughs> Not blossoms this yeah. time, but apples, yeah. but apples of gold. And when it's shaken, beautiful music appears, and anyone who's in a bad temper or grumpy, mm-hmm. it's, it's all smiley and happy, yeah. and uh, anything that Cormac says, everyone will agree with him. Mm-hmm. That's why I said I want one of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was just thinking if I'm teaching or something, ding a ding ding Yeah. Really nice. Yeah. Wouldn't very... mind it having one of them when the kids were small. Yeah. <laughs> but it is almost exactly the same description, like you it say. It really yeah. is. Yeah. But as I say, maybe we, we did say when we were looking at Brick Crew mm. that uh, maybe it became a sort of uh, image for yeah. the king to have. Exactly. To yeah. gain attention. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, they listen to me in the mm. way that you would listen if I had the apple branch exactly. from uh, the Isle of Apples. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, look, back to the holiday destination promotion that this woman starts <laughs> on about. Yeah. And uh, in her sort of advertisements for this wonderful place, she mm. goes, There is a distant isle around which seahorses glisten, a fair course against a white swelling surge, four feet uphold it. Actually, I'm not sure what the four feet are. Well, in some... Sea and island on four feet. Well, talking about the sea. I think it might refer to... Um, there's a quite, again, quite odd descriptions in some of the other Imrova of islands that sit kind of on top of pillars in the sea. So you can kind of hear what's going on up there, but you can't see it. It's like above your head. Right. So it might be that kind of, you know, on little um, podia. Rather than Pratchett, this it is, is a bit, it? yeah, yeah. And I keep getting this sort of almost, um, oh, I was thinking Magritte image mm, of mm. an island on a foot that's yeah. hopping around the sea. Well, yeah, you would. <laughs> well, okay, I would. Yeah. Anyway, let's go on because mm. I like the next uh, quatrain. Yeah. A delight of the eyes, a glorious range is plain on which the hosts hold games. Coracle contends against chariots in southern Magfindargat. Yeah, I love that name for the place of Mouthind Arrogance. It's the plain of fair silver, bright silver, but fair as in white or just. And I love the idea of the chariot against Coracle. Yes, yeah. Now, that's something that hasn't appeared in the Olympics or the Winter Olympics. (laughs) Not yet, anyway. Let's give climate change a chance. (laughs) But also, you've got this idea we're going to you know, see again and again, mm. the idea of sea and land are equal. Exactly. There's always this equivalence. And particularly for the other world people, it might as well be one as the other. And uh, it's an image that will come up again and again. And then she goes on to talk about the ambience, you oh, know, yeah. why it's worth coming to this yeah. place, you know. 
without grief, without sorrow, without death, without any sickness, without debility. This is the sign of Evan. Uncommon is an equal marvel. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that this uh, union of music and health. Yeah, yeah, that comes up again and again. And music is very important to uh, the, the other world in general, but most particularly in the Emerald stories. You meet it again and again, you meet wondrous music. Often it's the singing of birds, but there's always some kind of wondrous music, even like the music of the apple branch yeah. itself. And again, I was thinking of the uh, Aideen, the purple fly. Yes. And the music, the perfume, mm. and it was healing. Exactly, yeah. Mind you, it's the, you know, this turns up, I wonder if this is where Shakespeare got the idea. With, oh, yes. Uh, Be not a fear, the isle is full of noises, sounds and strange airs, which give delight and hurt not. Yeah. So maybe, you know, if that's properly, I'm coming. That's the Tempest, that, anyway. The Tempest, yeah. anyway, in Caliban. Mm. And he turned around and talks about the... I love that, yeah. that, that speech, anyway, because yes. it's so unexpected yeah. in Caliban. Yeah. But it could describe these islands. Exactly, yeah. Again, the strangeness of them, and it's always music. Yes, It's yeah. the first thing you encounter. Yeah, and the, that music that, like you say, brings kind of peace and health, health. and wholeness. Particularly health, yeah. 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 But why Evan? Uh, well, I'm not 100% sure about this one myself. My feeling is that it kind of is a transference from Evan Macha being sort of one of the most important gathering places of the mm -hmm. people. Because um, that's the twins. Exactly. Evan Macha is the twins of Macha. But there may be some other linguistic derivation that I don't know about. But my guess would be that it transfers. Evan Macha is often called just Evan. And so that may have come to signify a gathering place. A port important in gathering place. Exactly. A centre. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's as good a name for these other world lands because they're places where the other world people gather together and celebrate. The gathering place mm. of apples, the exactly. gathering place of life. Yeah. 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 I can't see why not. Mm. Oh, I love the next bit. This is really fun. Yellow golden steeds are on the sward there. Other steeds with crimson hue, others with wool upon their backs, of the hue of heaven, or blue. <laughs> some horses. I know, I know, I wouldn't mind some of them. They're a bit My Little Pony. Almost, well, that's what they? I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> At first I was thinking, oh, what a wonderful picture that would be. Yeah. Nah, nah, it would end up very tweed. <laughs> like a sort of wonderful My Little Pony picture. Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, come on, there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, <laughs> I never had My Little Pony. No, you were deprived that way. But um, <laughs> I had spaceships, if yeah, you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was jealous of Millennium Falcon that a friend of mine had when I was a child. But anyway, the horses, one of the features, again, of all these Imrov journeys are bizarre horses or horse-like beasts that have this just completely bizarre and, you know, unearthly appearance. But they're, again, it's that sort of slightly surreal something out of place well as, as we've said so often that um you know a lot of the stories that horses represent a very high status mm, absolutely. Know, to have a herd of horses is yeah. extremely high status absolutely it's better than cows yeah yeah you can't ride cows really well you can, you but... can but you'd look a bit silly <laughs> yeah but possibly not over fences yeah <laughs> sorry definitely not dressage <laughs> <laughs> just getting an image of cow dressage, <laughs> especially if they're blue or yeah. wool on them. Oh, look, this is yeah. getting silly. But it is, it is that kind of. It's both hyper real and surreal. You know these images. You know, and that that I think is part of this land of the living, where things are kind of over bright, yeah. over super real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah quite. It's quite an image actually. Mm. I'm still, I'm still suffering from the cows, blue cows with. Blue week. <laughs> Doing dressage. 
stop. <laughs> Look, we don't want to go through every one of the no. 28 stanzas of the poem. No, especially not with this kind of... <laughs> and the whole uh, poem will go on the blog anyway. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, it will all get up there. So you will be able to look through, pick out your own favourite bits as well. And you can see we're not making it up about the blue woolly no, horses. No, no. But perhaps we should just continue with the synopsis of the poem. Yeah. I mean, the woman tells them that at sunrise, if Bran goes on this yeah. uh, Imrov, he will meet a man riding in a chariot over the sea as if it were fair and level plain. Yes. And um, we know who this is. This, of course, is Mananon the Clear, uh, who's very central to this story. And now, Mananon, he's above all of the sea. Yeah, well, that's the mock Lear. Yeah. Lear is another term for the sea. And um, generally, we don't necessarily meet Lear as a personage in himself but the the children of Lear as we know from another story oh yes so yes, we do don't we yeah but it's children of the sea so Mananon is a son of the sea you yeah, know yeah. and you could even use that today as son of the sea as a kind of synonym for he a sailor is the giver of great treasures oh yeah and he was described as having this wonderful iridescence about him mm, mm. this iridescent sea green blue cloak yeah he has this wonderful horse called Envar yes. who can ride across the sea as if it were a plain of flowers exactly yeah. he's always um particularly sort of noble and mm. fine and and yet he's also sometimes in other later stories mm. described as a wandering storyteller and yes. trickster and doing magic tricks which always turn out to be quite obvious when you know how to do them yeah he turns into the Karanuk Quail Reevuk which is the the kern with the uh, narrow stripy uh, coat. Of the, yeah with yeah. the tattered robe exactly tattered yeah coat. and he sort of journeys around the courts of Ireland and it's they're a bit like pub tricks that he does yeah they are you know where he sets a challenge and it seems impossible and then he, and he shows you how to do it it's obvious exactly yeah yeah but you know we have met this kind of you know it's a, not a million miles away from the verbal trickery of the Dagda and Oingus but it has a different quality exactly to it. yeah so from this wonderful figure of on the sea to mm. this tricky and gift giver yeah maybe that's how he gets this um sort of pub tricks yeah. quality. i yeah. don't know but it is interesting the two sides of him mm. we've also met him before in Aideen, haven't we? yes we did he does appear sort of almost on the edges of that story but when we were discussing it we did sort of talk about um mither's role and right some similarity my bees in bonnets exactly and that's a big one that i think we'll have to come back to because i've now reached the point where i'm confusing yeah, Mither, Mither and, 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 Mananon. and Mananon. Yeah. Because I'm quite convinced that he pinched all Mither's stories. Mm. And the more I go into it, yeah. the more convinced I am. But we'll have to go back to exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. It's quite clear that above all, like Mither, he's a, a judge exactly. and a legitimizer. Yes, and especially a kind of a legitimizer of dynasties. You know, we found that the that one version of the story of Aideen kind of brings it around to making her an ancestress of uh, Cunra Moore and his dynasty um, and that you know some of that legitimization comes through Mither mm -hmm. um, but in this we have Mananon giving legitimization again to kind of earthly rulers if you like so and we're going to see how important that one is exactly yeah well, there's one more thing mm. we've got to mention that he and his folk they're also immortal oh yes of course they are <laughs> but not just immortal but also invisible Oh yeah, yeah, invisible to mortal people. Yeah, so unless yeah. they want to be exactly. Yeah, and there's also happiness on his land. There's mm -hmm. also happiness, health, great sports, yeah, contests, and always perfect weather. Oh yes, yeah. Now that is an appeal to any 
Irish person and an island of women. Variegated or speckled women? Um, <laughs> well, it is one of these peculiar adjectives. They're described as brick, you know, which I have in the past translated as dappled. Yeah. It does sort of depend on the context. One of the things with brick, though, is that it's often something which has red speckles. Oh, like rose mole all in speckle upon trout that swim. Yes, Sorry. yeah. Tr trouts are, oh, are I'm just, just quoting um, Hopkins. Yes, of course. of course. But trouts are even called bread. Brec, yeah, that's, right, you know. that's why the line came to exactly, mind. Exactly, yeah. Um, but this business of the sort of the red spots, it made me wonder, are these freckled women? You know, and I know that people now tend to be ashamed of freckles, but yeah, they're not. They, they're, yeah, people don't but, like them, but there's nothing wrong with them. Exactly. Well, I mean, the reason people now don't like them is the same reason they would have been special in the past, which is that it marks people out as different. Um, oh. And of course, freckles are really particular to that very fair skin. Or red hair. And red hair, you know, both of which would have been, you know, seen as very special. The red gold. Mm, mm, yeah. Absolutely. So it would have been a sign of extra beauty. Yeah. So possibly to be freckled implies that you're also either fair or red gold. Yes, exactly. And maybe slightly otherworld. So there you go. Don't be ashamed of your freckles, ladies. Now, the poem says about all these, it's not just one other word, Ireland. No. It describes there being 150 of them. Yes. Maybe twice the size of Ireland or more. Yes. I think they're on the way to America. Oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> but I love the way that they have um, such wonderful names or epithets. I they think do, it's more yeah. Than that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's hard to know whether there are sort of different descriptions of the same place or distinct places, but just I don't think it really matters. Yeah. For them. Now, we've already met the Mag Findaragat, which is this plain of fair silver, but there's also Mag Argat Nail, which is the plain of silver clouds. That's lovely. I really like that one, yeah. yeah. And then there's Argfect, which means bountiful, you know. So, and again, you'd think, so are these just epithets? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Then we have Kewen, which I, I was actually in primary and secondary school with someone called Kewen. Um, in modern Irish, it means quiet. It kind of comes from a word meaning gentle, peaceful, you know, that kind it's a bit of quiet. tough calling someone quiet. I know, it? I know, poor lad. But uh, yeah, so, and of course, everyone who's been in school in Ireland knows about Kewness, which is what a teacher will yell when they're mm -hmm. quiet. So yeah, that's Kewen. Uh, then there's Malgrain, which means the plain of the sea. And I think mm. that's sort of referring to that idea of the sea as this plain of flowers. Um, Magmon, which just means that the plain of sports, mm -hmm. you know, so it's where they're having all of their uh, sporty activities. Um, then we've got Imhuen, which is really quiet. <laughs> <laughs> shh, really, really shh. Um, or really, you know, gentle, peaceful. peaceful yeah. Exactly. Um, and of course, Ildothak which just means many coloured or multicoloured land. They're lovely descriptions. They're gorgeous, yeah, absolutely. So the woman goes on to prophesy a birth, which at first sight does seem to uh, refer to the birth of Christ. Mm. Look, I'll read this couple yeah. of quatrains. A great birth will come after ages that will not be in a lofty place. The son of a woman whose mate will be not known. He will seize the rule of the many thousands. A rule without beginning, without end. He has created the world so that it is perfect whose are earth and sea. Woe to him that shall be under his own will. Well, it certainly sounds Christian. It does, absolutely. Um, and it could be a sort of interpolation, but 
We're going to meet more about this prophecy later when Bran confronts Mananon when they finally actually meet. So I think it's incredibly intriguing, this puzzle. There is something else going on. Yeah, we had better come back to that later and get on with the story for now. So the woman urges Bran to take the voyage and she says it will be worth it. Oh, yeah. Uh, but before she goes, she takes back the apple branch. Yeah, and it's this lovely bit of description where all she has to do is hold up her hand and suddenly Bran can no longer hold on to it and it sort of flies out of his hand and smack into the woman's hand and off she goes with it again. She, she it's metal, she's got a magnet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, there we are. I always wondered until I really looked into this, mm. this uh you know, particularly in Rob, the, whether Cormac got to keep his apple branch. Yeah. And actually thinking about it, of course he can't. No. Because as we've said, you can't have things that you've just been given. Yeah. Uh, can't except for a special purpose. Yeah, yeah. But it seems like these particular apple branches can't stay on Yeah, there. they have to go back. Yeah. yeah. Somebody would melt them down, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and so Brian finally gets to set off in his Imrock, doesn't he? Oh, finally, we've yeah. Got <laughs> Now, he takes with him three companies of nine, and he and two of his foster brothers are in charge of each of those companies. So you can imagine kind of three boats each crewed by nine. Um, so, yeah. Any significant stuff? Well, we've kind of touched on this before with the numbers. Nines, that's what I thought. Yeah, but that the individual numbers don't necessarily have a significance, but they're, they make a nice pattern. You yeah. know, um, the Irish definitely liked their little groupings, you know, so it could be four groups of four, um, although often with one in the middle. So if you've got four fours and one, that's 17, a nice prime number. But I don't think it makes much of a difference whether have, it's four or three. Do didn't you know we I mean? have nines, meaning like a company of troops? Yes, we did like have a, a nine verb. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So again, that might be a, a kind of a code word for that, but yeah. we'll come up with these numbers again in the other Imrova because sometimes if someone is supposed to set out with 17 and then extra people join in at the last minute you know those extra people are going to get lost along the way. Richards! <laughs> exactly! <laughs> oh my goodness if they're, not yeah. more, if they're more than nine they're yeah. gonna die! Exactly exactly <laughs> and that's that's what we're going to find you know so there is this sense so of set off with you know, nines and Richards. Yeah yeah it's got to be a nice you know, round number, a pleasing little pattern that they can do. You know, they they like it to be neat like that. But it's a, sort of a natural patterning. And now we get to meet Mananon himself, finally. Yep. Brown sees him riding in a chariot across the sea surface as though it was a plane of flowers. It's a great image, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's wonderful. I love when they do that, yeah. I wonder if the chariot's pulled by the horse Anvar. Well, it's quite possible. It's not named by name as Anvar, one mane or splendid mane, but, you know, it might as well be. Why not? Um, Mananon then introduces himself to Bran and the company on the three boats. Well, they were surprised. <laughs> I think they probably were. <laughs> he gives us his name and his lineage, but he goes on then to tell Bran particularly uh, that he's on his way to Ireland to go and conceive a magnificent, wonderful hero's son, and this will be Mungan, the son of Fiachna. Now, wait a minute. That's a bit disingenuous, isn't it? <laughs> Actually, he's intending, he's on his way to Ireland to sleep with Fiachna's wife. Uh, yeah. His not... name is Queen Tegan. Queen Tigger and the gentle lordship, yes. Yeah, knowing that Fiegne will then have no choice but to recognise his proxy son. Exactly, yeah. There's, you know, even though he's not the natural father, he's the legal father. Well, he then proceeds with another 30 quatrains. Yeah, 28. Okay. <laughs> Extolling the virtues of the Isle and the honour and magnificence of Mongan, his future son. Of course. Well, there's definitely an awful lot going on here. Oh, I mean, 
It almost seems as though, you know, the entire purpose of this Imrov was just to get Bran to this place and this time, as though the apple branch and the woman describing all these wonderful offshore marvels are kind of just bait to get Bran into the middle of the sea so he can hear Manon's prophecy of this wonderful son that he's going to have. Yeah, and as a reward, he gets to go to this exciting land of women. Of course. Yeah, it's like, a bit like one of those timeshare scams, isn't it? You know, <laughs> Uh, come along and listen to the sales talk and you'll get your chance to win the big prize. <laughs> There's nothing about this that is punishment or penitence, let's put it that way. <laughs> You're not kidding, not with the Isle of Women. No. So who is this Mongan and why is he so important? Is he another one of these, is this another one of these tales where some regional king wants to legitimise his <laughs> dynasty by insisting on another world ancestor? You know, like Aideen. Yes, like when Aideen was sort of given that title of Bay Find, the great other world ancestress. And Mongan. Well, this is an interesting one because there is a Mungan Muck Fiachna, um, which is the same one as being referred to mm, in our mm. tale, that's recorded in the annals as yeah. having died in around the year 625. But there's not an awful lot aside from that okay. about a, a living Mungan, but he's listed in the an uh, uh, annals as a prince of a, a particular population group. Um, but more importantly, he has some fantastic stories. Um, so as well as being Mac Fiachna, the son of Fiachna, right. um, he is in this story, obviously, uh, called a son of Mananon MacLear. Yeah. Um, and there are stories that say that he is basically a reincarnation of Finn McCovell. Yeah. Now, I, I must admit, I've looked at some of his stories. I think they're fantastic. They are. They're really And brilliant. funny enough, before... Uh, we looked at this. I really had just heard his name now mm. and again, but I've never actually read his story. Yeah, yeah. He's quite a character. <laughs> he definitely is. I mean, there's Monga, there's these great stories about Mongan and his poets. Isn't oh, there? yeah, absolutely. Where, you know, the, the there's sort of a battle of wits between them. And... He's terrified of his poets. Oh, yeah. He'll give just about anything he has in order to prevent the poet from satirising him. So it says a lot about the status of, uh, of poets. Oh, yes, that it does, yeah. There's another story that actually explains why he doesn't have any children, isn't there? Yeah, and that's a curious one. Again, it's supposed to be, I think, a poet's curse. But it's interesting because we were talking earlier about, you know, these stories which legitimise uh, a dynasty by giving it an otherworld parentage. But obviously if Mungan didn't have children, then that's not quite what's going on here. So that's not the purpose of, no. of these. This has got something different going on. Yeah. It really is about this is an... Uh, 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 it's, it's odd, he seems to be halfway between myth and history. Yeah. And he's always also halfway between one world and the other. Exactly. He's sort of both of the she-world and, his, and, and the, the human, human world. Yeah, exactly. And yet he's a human... Well, we're going to hear exactly. a lot more about We will anyway. hear more about it. And I think that we decided we want to sort of take an episode... Oh, the stories are great fun. ...to just look at Mungan as a character and his stories. Because I think, yeah, they can give us an awful lot. Uh, I was really struck with them. I yeah. thought they were great fun. Yeah. We haven't time to look no. at him for now. No, but... It is his birth that's being prophesied. So in a way, he's the main character of this episode anyway. Well, he's the main outcome, let's say. From now on, mm. why don't we just talk about what happens to Bran? Yeah. It is supposed to be his Imran. It is, rather, yes. Yes, he's getting slightly overshadowed. <laughs> I mean, I know Mananon's poetry is absolutely fascinating. It is wonderful, I yeah. mean, it illuminates a lot about the nature of the other worlds. Yes. And this gets into this strange blend of Christian and pre-Christian imagery. Yeah. 
And then, of course, there's poetry. You can tell, you know, you know all about the poetry. Yeah, well, again, you know, linguistically speaking, as we've said often many times before, and this is supported in Kunemeyer's edition of this mm. tale, that the poetry is much older, that the structure of poetry will naturally preserve a more archaic form of language. And so Kunemeyer has put the poetry of this tale into about the 7th century. Yeah, about the same dates as Mungan, obviously. Exactly. Obviously yeah, yeah, that in the annals, Mungan is recorded at the beginning of the 7th century, and that's about contemporaneous with the poetry. So, I don't know, there's something obviously very particular about that time. Did you say to me that you thought maybe that it had led to... Uh, Mungan being sort of placed into the annals. Yeah, because again, as we said before, there are many kind of histories and genealogies that sort of start in recent history but end up in mythology. And I think that because Mungan is this very important character that straddles two mm -hmm. worlds, that he might have been sort of uh, retrospectively inserted into the annals just to make him a full human figure. And he's very little known. Yeah, exactly. I didn't realise. Oh, look, we're talking about Mongol again. I know, yeah, got to get back to poor old Bram. So, look, I'll tell you what, we'll leave Bram to wave farewell to Manalong yes. for the time being and get on with this adventure. Exactly, yeah. Um, now, the next thing that happens after Bram has left Manalong behind is they come to a very peculiar island. Okay. And on this island, they see a whole load of people who are kind of stupidly laughing and gaping and just sort of just standing around guffawing slightly stupidly exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah that kind of thing yeah think of the, the gumbies in uh, mm. monty python but less um less verbal they're just standing around and laughing and gaping and so on less boots and handkerchiefs yeah <laughs> but uh one of brown's crew goes ashore to try and find out you know what's this island all about but as soon as he puts his foot on land, this crew member just starts gaping and laughing like all the other people there and, you know, won't respond to any of the questioning of the rest of Bran's crew. And they sort of go around the island a couple of times and any time they go past their crew member, they're sort of shouting out and trying to get his attention, but he's just pointing and laughing like the rest of them. Um, and, and this island's called the Isle of Joy. I know, yeah. Oh, it's all a joy. It's more <laughs> like some sort of manic amusement. I know what it reminds me mm. of. It reminds me of a sort of audience of somebody named Reality TV show. Yeah, yeah. Or that, <laughs> exactly, that yeah. kind of canned laughter. Yeah, um, now, that's not a million miles away from what one reading of what this is all about. Now, this is something that we will come back to right at the end when we're trying to find different interpretations yeah, for yeah. all the Emerald. So this is like a teaser. Yeah, this is a, just we're really a little... Interested in. Yeah, just a, a bit of a flag for one of the ways we might be looking at this. And that is that the islands and wonders in the Imrava kind of stand for different approaches to reading a text. Yeah. And so this could be, if you like, a bit of a warning of saying that you know, if you're just reading a text for amusement and for fun, then you get kind of sucked into it and then you'll never read anything else, you know. Okay, so, so this is a warning against reading comics or um, yeah. just getting stuck in computer games. Exactly. Actually, yeah. there's nothing wrong with computer no, games. No, no, no. But it is that kind of thing of going, if you're just looking for a laugh, then you won't ever get anything more out of reading a text. Yeah, in fact, let me take all that back and say, <laughs> this is more like watching... Um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, once you're kind of hooked into something like that. Or then... some soap or other. Yeah, yeah. It's... Oh, warning against soaps. There we go. Yeah. In the Imrama. Yeah. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> now we know. They were warning us against soaps exactly. all those years ago. <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that reading 
um, or that approach, if you like, to understanding the Amrava right at the end. Because I think there's quite a lot you can get out of that, but it's for another later, divergence. I'm sorry about all the, you know, we oh, just we're just full of tangents today. Yeah. But anyway, look, let's get to the Isle of Women. Finally. So yeah. finally, <laughs> Brown and his companions get to the promised place, the Isle of Women. Uh, now, the trouble is that from the Isle of Joy, Brown mm. has sort of learnt his lessons. So, one, once bitten and twice shy. Yeah, so he, so the, he sees this beautiful woman standing, the leader of the woman standing on the uh, shore going, come here, come here. And she calls him by name and she welcomes him to the Isle and said, you finally reached where you're getting. You get, get it, where you were going and he goes, no way. Yeah. <laughs> you think I'm landing in your island? You've got another thing coming. <laughs> He's not going to take a chance. No, he's not going to have the same thing happen again. Um, but the the woman has obviously been prepared for this eventuality. It's obviously happened before. Yeah, so she has another trick up her sleeve. And what she has up her sleeve is something that we've met before. It's a sticky ball of wool. Oh, that was one of the 12 gifts, wasn't it, it on yes. the Christmas special? Exactly. So she chucks this ball of wool out to... Um, uh, to Bran, who almost like a reflex catches hold of it and of course it sticks to his hand and that gives her the opportunity just to reel them right into land. So, you know, yeah, I think that she was expecting something of this nature. You know, it's, I just thought it's almost like the opposite of what happened with the apple branch. Mm, yeah. That he can't hold in his hand. Exactly. And it gets snapped back. Yeah. This he can't let go of. Exactly. So yeah. it's almost like a, a balance yeah. to that. They mighty. make a pair, definitely, definitely. And of course, once ashore, they get their reward. Oh yes, this is you know the 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 ultimate gift, which naturally is the perfect woman for every man on the boats. And there's exactly the right number, and you know Bran being the leader gets to go with the leader of the island of women, and there's a bed for every couple and uh, there's much feasting and merrymaking and their plates are never empty and yeah. So these are now ascetic monks then? <laughs> <laughs> well in this one definitely not so much you know but it is this kind of it is that traditional view of the yeah. other world of getting everything that you could possibly want. So as usual everyone gets the food they like yeah. and time passes at a different rate. Exactly. They think they've only been there a day yeah. And they've been there much longer than exactly. that. Exactly, yes, yeah. Uh, they've certainly moved into the other world. No doubt about it. These are all the things we've met before. Only there's one problem, isn't there? Because this is a parallel world and mm. time has passed at a different rate, mm. going home is going to prove a bit of a problem. Exactly, yeah. And they don't have near as luck. I mean, do you remember no. he had the guidance of the other world woman? It was almost as though he knew exactly, she knew rather, exactly when to hold the door open. Yeah. There was a certain point he could go through and she even said, if you don't go now, you won't go. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Bran doesn't get that help. No, it, it's more of a warning, really, that uh, the... the Queen of the Island says to him, you know, you really can't go back. If you must go back, you mustn't land on the shore of Ireland. Yeah, you can it... never put a foot on the soil of and Ireland And of course, again. predictably, one of them gets homesick. Yes, naturally, yeah. There's Nechton, who's, this is only the first time we've really met him by name in this story. One and these last act heroes. Yes, exactly. And he just is pining away and wants to see Ireland again and what have you. And so they're given this warning that they mustn't actually land in Ireland. And also told that they should pick up their lost crew member from the Island of Joy. How do they get him off? It's not told that, is it? Not in this version. I think in another one of the Imrova, one of the techniques for getting someone back from the Island of Joy has to do with holding your breath for the whole time you're on there and you won't get infected by the laughing. You know, awareness of the breath means it 
brings you back out of hysteria. Well, it's back to your it's back to your uh, methods of uh, handling poetry exactly. and text. Yeah. In other words, performing mm. don't corpse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's really hard to stop. Yes, definitely. As you we may discover. have. You may have. <laughs> don't corpse. It's hard to stop. <laughs> Well, as you might expect, when they do actually get to the shore of Ireland, Nechton can no longer control himself and he leaps out of the boat. And the second he touches the land of Ireland, lo and behold, he crumbles into a heap of ashes. Here we go. You know, this is Neva Nasheed all over again. Exactly, yes. You yeah. can't come back. Yeah. Although in both, it does have this sense that as soon as they come back to Ireland, all the time catches up with them. Oh, yeah, you that's know. right. Because when they land, mm. you've got this situation where he goes, here, I've come back. Yeah. I'm Bran, I've come back. And they go, ooh. Exactly. What? Yeah. And Bran, you know, he rem Oh, there was a Bran who went away. But that's in our histories. It's Exactly. Ago. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it, this really gets across that you've been gone so long, you're just a legend. Yeah, yeah, which is wonderful. And I think that that's the same thing of the crumbling into dust, because if you had stayed in Ireland all that time, you'd, you'd be, be dust. Exactly. Yeah. But what I really like is that they've lost Nechton now, and Bran composes a quatrain in memoriam to him. But then he records their entire tale, all their journey, uh, by carving it in Oham or Alham. Um, on some kind of a stave and he sort of throws that so that it's on the shore and then they sail off never to be seen in Ireland again. Well, I presume he went back to the island of women. Well, you'd, you'd assume so. Well, he you did know. better than us. Exactly, yeah. He actually heeded the warnings, you know, and went back to the life of utter pleasure and luxury. Who wouldn't? Yeah, I still don't <laughs> like that story. <laughs> Yes, I know you don't like the story <laughs> of Neve and Oshin, has been abundantly clear. Um, but for now, we need to keep to this story because we still have all of Mananon's 30... 28. Okay, 28 quatrains to examine before we can wrap this one up. Right, it goes back to, again, one of my favourite images, mm. of the idea of Mananan riding either on his great white horse, Eanvar, splendid mane, yeah. or, or in his chariot across the surface of the sea as if it was a plain of flowers. Yeah. I really, I think that's Gorgeous. a beautiful image. Yeah. But no wonder he opens his poem with, What is a clear sea for the proud skiff in which Bran is? That is a happy plain with a profusion of flowers to me from the chariot of two wheels. Mm. It's really nice. It is. And he also has this wonderful description that although the Bran and his people can't see it, there's this profusion of white horses on all sides of them. What waves? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is that sort of poetic. I mean, we, we do refer to those kind of white horses waves as sea. white horses. Yeah. But it's, it's sort of both. You know, it's both this wonderful poetic description. I mean, he talks about the sea running with streams of silver and gold. But then it's also this unseen world where, you know, he says that it's full of, you know, amazing horses and happy people who are, you know, enjoying their wine and playing games and, you know, Generally all around them. Absolutely, yeah. But it's interesting, this image of the sea. I mean, who hasn't looked at the sea, say, standing by the water or on a bridge or, mm. or just on a ship on a beautiful on a sunny day yeah. when the, the sun... Those sparkles seem to oh, separate yeah. themselves from the sea. And you can always imagine like a net of stars mm. on the surface of the sea. Yeah. Or when it changes and becomes sort of runnels of liquid gold mm. or 
bronze. It's, yeah. It's, you can imagine all sorts of wonderful scenarios with oh, that yeah. surface. Yeah, and of course, you know, I've always been hypnotised by the moon on the sea. You know? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of image of a, of a pathway. The moon path. Mm. Yeah, that's always the one I was talking about that the other day. Yeah. It reminded yeah. me of the Yeats, you know. Cross of Heaven. Yes, I'm sorry, it's a very ordinary, boring poem, but well, it no, just fits I... with the path of the sea. It does, yeah. Tread softly because you tread on my dreams. And you yeah. can't walk on the sea path because no. you get wet. I know, I've tried it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it is kind of that thing where you're looking at this ever-changing sea and all of the different colours and reflections. And it will sort of change. Yeah. Your perceptions the, alter. Exactly. And, and there's all these landscapes mountains, and cities. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And when we were talking about this the other day, I was starting to think about the wonderful descriptions of the planet of Solaris. Oh, I love that. But in fact, it's Stanislaus Lem. Yeah, yeah, you put me onto the book. And which is the Tarkovsky film. Don't mm. ever go near the other one. But the Tarkovsky <laughs> film is worth working through. Mm. But the, the book has the most extraordinary language. And it, it is this planet which the surface is mostly liquid, but all these kind of shapes and images sentient rise ocean. out of the, the ocean. Yeah, it's, it's, it's marvellous. And the way it's described, it's, it's got that, you know, it is another world. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that's what Stanislas Lem has managed to convey. Exactly, yeah. And I think that we've got something similar going on with this, you know. Oh, don't worry, we don't want to get into no. a discussion on Tarkovsky and, no, and Stanislas but... Lem, but it's still worth reading. Exactly, it's very, very much worth reading. Yeah. It is an attractive image. Mm. I mean, it's such a... I mean, we're back to... Yeah, both Solaris Exactly, Solaris. yeah. But the way that the sea is described here, yeah, it's very seductive. Mm. And you can see why Bram might be drawn to seek this land. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there is a suggestion that this unseen world, I know it's all around mm. him, but it's also under the water yeah. as well, especially with the next stanzas. Mm. There's a wood of beautiful fruit under the prow of thy little skiff, a wood with blossom and fruit, on which is the vine's veritable fragrance, mm. a wood without decay, without defect, on which are leaves of golden hue. Mm. So this isle where the branch comes from yeah. is under the sea or can be under the yes. sea. Yes, yeah. Now we've met underwater islands before. We met it with uh, the children of Turin, where they got the cooking split. We met it again in Inveralvina, this island at the bottom of the sea where the women are. Um, but in other Imrava as well, there's a, an episode in the Imrava of Mildon where they're sailing on a sea that is so still that when they look down, it's as though they're flying over a land and they look yeah. down and see all this landscape underneath And them. it gets like that sometimes yeah. on a clear day. Mm. Now, I could talk about snorkelling <laughs> off the Great Barrier Reef. And make us all absolutely <laughs> green with envy. But when there, where you just allow yourself to mm. float in the water with a flotation device, I, mm. I'm afraid I'm not a good swimmer, but then you're just staring at this underworld mm. world and this, you know, valleys and mountains yeah. and gullies and the colours. And then when you put your head out of the water, you have miles from the ship or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't swim. <laughs> But, I mean, in, in a real sense, there is a whole other world, there's a whole other ecosystem under our oceans, you know, that is the majority of the surface of this planet, but it's unknown to us. And it's as difficult to go, you mm. need as much extra equipment as you would to go to the moon. space, exactly, yeah. yeah. And yet we know more about the moon than we do about the, the um, mm. beds of our own oceans. But you can imagine how, you know, even in the old days, just looking out of the boat and seeing maybe the kelp, 
rippling, you know, as though they're trees and in the, the wind. And the rocks, which almost seem to look like a sort of a ruined city. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. it's very romantic. It is, it is. I mean, you know, you could even imagine, you know, that, that, that what we were saying earlier on, mm. there were stories when you were talking, we were talking the other day, mm. that these stories for, of this underworld, underworld world. Yeah, and the, and the underwater world underwater particularly. Underwater world is what I mean, yeah, mm. sorry. Is, um, they come from all over the world. Mm. There are so many stories of them, and yeah. it, although they're particularly prevalent in um, the Celtic lands. Yes, in the, the, the Marrows and the mermaids and mm, so forth. Yeah. And of course, we were wondering about, you know, these memories of something like Doggerland, which was once in sort of Mesolithic times, was above sea level between kind of the northern part of Britain and the other parts of northern Europe. Mm. There's this huge plain of, you know, very inhabited land that ended up under the sea. Which was inhabited by... Oh, yeah, very much so. Well yeah. inhabited by people. Yeah, and, and would have been, like, if you were in parts of northern Scotland, you would have been looking out over a plain rather than over the North Sea. Yes, you know. a plain of flowers. Mm. So you wonder no, about things it, like You that. do one. I'm mm. not suggesting this is direct memory. No. But we have pointed out at times that mm. there are stories, some of the stories, I came across a story in Australia. Yeah about a lake which um, is still known today by some of the uh, indigenous peoples mm. and yet that lake hasn't been there for 35,000 years. Yeah, yeah. So, so memory can last an awfully long time and it's through stories like it, this. It is carried through stories mm. but we're not saying that that's how it happened. No. Nevertheless, it's a thought. Mm -hmm. And of course in this perfect place there's no sickness, no crime and no death. Yeah, and he's very careful to say as well that there's no sin. Yeah, we are from the beginning of creation, without old age, without consummation of earth. Hence we expect not that there should be frailty. That sin has not come to us. Yeah, and that, of course, is original sin. And as we've seen before in poems about the other world, it's quite clear that the other world is not affected by original sin. It's not under that regime. Exactly, yeah. And yet, in the very next quatrains, a man anon, if he is the one who's still speaking, mm. he just seems to go completely back on himself. Mm. Suddenly, just as in the first poem, the whole mood turns Christian. Mm. I mean, look at this. This is the very next quatrain. Yeah. An evil day when the serpent went to the father, to his city. She has perverted the times in this world, so that there came decay which was not original. And who is this she? Well, she's got to be Eve. Well, that's what I think, too, yeah. that she just appears out of the blue. Yeah, it's kind of like a pronoun without a name to refer to, you know, in this. Now, it, it could be interpolation. Um, you know, sort of a post-interpolation. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, it could be that Manon is comparing his other world, which isn't affected by this sin, mm. and the mortal world, which is under that. Well, I suppose so. I mean, mm. it kind of looks that way for the next couple of quatrains. Mm. I mean, it goes on like this. It is a law of pride in this world to believe the creatures to forget God, overthrow by diseases and old age, destruction of the soul through deception. I mean, he even seems to be referring to the birth of Christ yeah. in the next one. A noble salvation will come from the king who has created us. A fair law will come overseas. Besides being God, he will be man. Now that does seem hard to dodge, doesn't it? It does. 
The trouble is, it doesn't follow on, does it? No, it just seems to kind of come out of nowhere, really. And, you know, like that thing of using the pronoun she without having had any kind of female noun referred uh, beforehand. Yeah, it does kind of seem a little bit cobbled together, I have yeah, to say. a bit of a mess. Mm. But the very next quatrain, yeah. it just changes completely. Mm. He's implying that this noble salvation which we brought over the sea mm. is by him. Yeah. <laughs> He's the one who's yeah. about to create a saviour hero mm. who will bring the blessings and virtues of the other world to the mortal world. Yeah. I mean, you can't dodge this one in no. any way. For it is Malanon, the son of Lear, from the chariot in the shape of a man, of his progeny will be in a short while a fair man in a body of white clay. Mm, that's a lovely description for a start, that I love the fair man in the white clay. But yeah, I mean, this is definitely about Mungan, and this is Malanon, you know, picking himself up, really. <laughs> you know, that's kind of unequivocal. Yeah, and uh, then the she comes back. Exactly, yeah, but this time the she is very clearly Queen Pigern, who is Fiatna's wife, and who Malanon is going to go and sleep with in order to produce this wondrous son among them. describe her? As a vigorous bedfellow. You see, it's... it's... <laughs> now, I can't quite see Gabriel describing Mary, the mother of Jesus, that way, can you? Well, <laughs> it would upset a few people. Yes, it would. Probably. It might amuse others. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, well, that's right, because immediately you get this mm. vigorous bedfellow, yeah. and that's where he announces that uh, Fichtner will accept the child as his son. Exactly. Uh, he kind of has to, really, you know, because it will legally be his son, so Enough. he has to acknowledge it. Yeah, well, after that, he gets positively messianic <laughs> about this future child. Yeah, well, that does a wonderful description of, you know, what Mungan will be. So if Yeah, he says he'll be those... a master in both worlds yeah. and skilled in wisdom and shape-shifting. Yeah. Oh, for goodness sake, listen to this. He will deliver... Delight the company of every fairy knoll. He will be the darling of every goodly land. He will make known secrets, a course of wisdom in the world without being feared. He will be in the shape of every beast, both on the azure sea and on the land. Mm -hmm. He will be a dragon before hosts at the onset. He will be a wolf of every great forest. He will be a stag with horns of silver in the land where chariots are driven. He will be a speckled salmon in a full pool. He will be a seal. He will be a fair white swan. Really gorgeous. Nice, yeah, now, I mean, it's got so much in common with the stories of people like Tuan and or Finton, Finton yeah, yeah, who live through many lifetimes all in diff different shapes of different animals. And boy, doesn't it remind you of the Song of Havagin? Exactly. It's like, almost Ishmisha, like a... Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a future tense, you know, where the uh, the Song of Havagin is all about I, I am. am. This yeah. is he will be, you know, but it has that same quality to it. Yeah, it's absolutely, you know, it, it, it's just beautiful. Yeah. And just, you know, this, this is no ordinary child. God, no. <laughs> And what's more, on top of that, he's going to be a brilliant warrior. Of course he is. Well, he has to be, really. You know, if he's going to be all this other stuff, he'd better be good at fighting. Well, a great warrior and leader he may be, but he's not going to be immortal. It's said that he's only going to reign for 50 years. Do you know in an earlier standard it says 100 years? Well, I think at that stage Malinon might have been indulging in hyperbolics. Um, <laughs> okay, but, well, hyperventilation. Yeah, but... Uh, uh, Mungan's death and you know the, the cause and the time of his death yeah. is laid out in some detail in this prophecy. You it's know, a well-planned life. Isn't it, it is rather, yeah. 
And also, I believe Malinor intends to keep a close eye on him. Oh, yeah, just like Mither did with Oingus. Although Mither lost one of those eyes, <laughs> at least temporarily, for his trouble. He's going to be his tutor, isn't he? Yeah, and we do have the word Adza, which can mean tutor and foster father. So, you in know, a way, he's a foster father. Yeah, just like Mither and Oingus. But, you know, it reminds me of bit like Merlin and Arthur. Yeah, it's also very like Merlin and Arthur. Well, right down to the whole shenanigans over Arthur's birth, or mm. in this case, Mungan's birth. Yeah. Although here, the Merlin figure is stepping in to be the surrogate father. Which, again, is that fosterage position. Well, after all that prophesying, Manon finally lets Bran go. I know, um, uh, but tells him that he should be in the Island of Women by sunset that evening. And we covered the rest of the Imrov earlier. We did, indeed. Probably one of the most straightforward of the four texts, isn't it, in terms yeah. of the Imrov, in that they only visit two islands. Exactly, yeah, which is kind of almost the minimum that you need for it to be a good Imrov. <laughs> but uh, it also has this kind of feeling of being transitional between the Echtra stories, where it's, you know, that deliberate journey to the other world, and the Imrov, where it is that kind of penitential or penal kind of being set adrift and then having this sort of experience. Yeah, because the prophecy kind of takes over, really. It does, it? yeah. So it's got kind of... It, it really is transitional. I'd see this mm. as straddling the genres. You know, I do, though, find the poetry a bit troubling. Uh, but not for the same reason as Whitley Stokes and the other Celtic Twilight translators and interpreters. No, I mean, Whitley Stokes, even Kuna Meyer... wasn't happy, was No, he? he wasn't. I mean, Kuna Meyer, who would have been a contemporary and, you know, sort of acknowledges the work that Stokes did on this text, he does point out that there is a stanza in which Stokes has just out of nowhere inserted the phrase, Mary's son, to make it clear that all this prophesying is about Christ. Yeah, it was in the poem uh, that the woman spoke. Exactly. And in yeah. fact, I've actually um, quoted that, yeah, but... that verse, but I'll do it again, with Whitley Stokes' bit Yeah, in. yeah. So now it reads, He has created the world so that it is perfect, whose are earth and sea. Woe to him that shall be under his uh, the unwill of Mary's son. Yeah, and that Mary's son bit is just not there in the Irish. No, he just felt the need to emphasise that yeah. the words... Definitely, don't worry, it refers to the Christian God. Yeah, yeah. Um, one problem, though, is that the second poem, in particular, is such a prophetic vision of a saviour hero, mm. but much of it can be applied equally to Christ and Mongon, yeah. or Mananan and God. Yeah, yeah. It is a bit weird. <laughs> it is. But how about, we'll do a few examples yeah, of this. Yeah. I mean, it just is interesting. I think these are all lines from bits that we've already quoted, yeah. actually. Um, here's one. The son of a woman whose mate will not be known. Yes, and that mate could either be, you know, the Holy Spirit or it could be Mananon, you know. Yeah, or, you know, Christ acknowledged by Joseph. Exactly. Or Morgan yeah. acknowledged, acknowledged by, by Fiekna. Yeah. yeah. He will seize the rule of many thousands. Yeah. You've got your, your king of kings or your king of uh, tribe. Yeah. And he will purify hosts under pure water. It is he that will heal your sicknesses. Yeah, now this is an interesting one because... There's a lot, as we've said, in these kind of other world stories about health and, and well-being. And, you know, it's often associated with the waters, whether it's travelling over the waters or the water of baptism. It, it Again, yeah, equally apply. Even that sort of the idea of that, uh, I'm just thinking of the story of the woman at the well, mm. the, the, the woman of Samaria at the well. And mm. uh, Christ says to her, you know, you know, she offers water and he says, I can offer you water. Mm. That will mean you'll never thirst again. Yeah, yeah. And it's this... There's imagery that belongs to both exactly. again. Exactly, yeah. I hope we're not upsetting anybody, but it's no, just there. It's, it is, and, and it's extraordinary just how equally it can apply to both uh, 
traditions. And we've deliberately picked, if you like, the mm. ones that seem most Christian. Yeah. Um, how about this one? Um, this is <sighs> central. A noble salvation will come from the king who has created us. A fair law will come overseas. Beside being God, he will be man. Yeah. Now, this is presuming that people are seeing uh, Malanon as a god. Yeah. A god of the sea. Yes. You know, or from over the sea. From indeed. over the sea. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's very clear that Mongan mm. will be the son of the god Malanon. Besides being god, he will be man. Mm. Is what Mongan's going to struggle exactly. with. Exactly. Yeah. It's that kind of dual parentage that we meet quite a lot. So if you didn't have. The, the people being a bit prickly about mm. the Christian, mm. you would automatically assume this was man and arm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's a lot where it's quite deliberately equivocal that way. You know, I mean, equivocal in the sense that it does apply exactly equally to both. And that that's almost like this sense of an integration. Yeah. You know, he has created the world so that it is perfect. Mm. Whose are earth and sea? There's that. And we've constantly had this mm. thing about the earth and the sea, and yet you've got the whole genesis, the world, mm. you know, rising out of the waters mm. and so forth. Mm. It is. We could go on. There are plenty mm. more examples. Oh yeah, yeah. But these are just a, a few that we've picked out because they're they're so interesting in their imagery. I mean, what do you think is happening here? Well, again, it is part of the medieval uh, process of integrating. Um, the sort of biblical worldview with the native Irish worldview. We've discussed this before. We have, haven't we? So you know, native figures mm, are, are given the prophecies. Exactly. There's that one about Krahur who... That's who, what I was thinking. Yeah, exactly. Who dies when he hears that Christ has been crucified and all oh, that yeah, kind of the thing. the ball in his head that yes. the tattler kills him. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you also have it then in the kind of the Lever Gavala tradition, which is linking up the kind of the Irish foundation stories um, with the biblical genealogies, mm. you know, and it was a very deliberate process, you know, and it was, if you like, a positive process of yeah. integration. Um, but I think there's also a, a sense in which there is um, a kind of a retrospective um, Christianization from time to time, you know, like those verses we picked out, which talk about, you know, the fall of man due mm -hmm. to Eve, they feel like retrospective interpolations. Well, that one particularly, that's yeah, kind of, because of that she appears from nowhere, exactly, yeah. and it, the rest of it flows so well. Mm -hmm. But that one, you've just got, yeah, no references around it at all, yeah, yeah. So that one you could say is that kind of slight medieval horror at just how messianic yeah. <laughs> Mananon so is about his son. It, so know. it's causing a problem to yeah. Christian readers and recorders, yeah. both in the early Christian mm. and the equally religious mm. 19th and early 20th century. Absolutely, yeah, as we saw with Stokes going, no, it has to be Mary's son, it has to be Mary's son. Yeah, yeah. it does. Yeah, and even to any modern reader, mm. those claims do seem, whether one is Christian or not, mm. they seem slightly shocking, don't yeah, they? It, it it does kind of have that, you, you get a sense of almost blasphemy from it, you know, yeah, saying, well, oh yeah, well, think, we've got a Christ of our own, actually. Yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah, I, think I find them a bit shocking mm. for slightly different reasons. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, we often talk about what we call the medieval and 18th century compacted layers, or 18th, 19th century. Yeah, you know, the, those sort of parts of our story archaeological trenches where there's been so much kind of revision and, and interpretation going on that it's and hard to get through. Yeah, so it makes it harder to get through to which layers come where. However intensely grateful we are for those exactly, times, because yeah. we wouldn't have a lot of this without it. Exactly, yeah. Um, but 
I don't know, how do I put this? Every age believes that it has the clear view. Of course. It is objective. We now have the truth. However, we all have biases, mm. depending on where we are and when we are. Yeah, and they're utterly inescapable. I mean, the, there is a very strong argument to say that, you know, any kind of history, any discourse like that is just a process of, you know, bias adjustment. And that you never get to something that is, if you like, genuinely, purely objective always going to be a form of subjectivity i mean involved. even history is fashion yeah exactly fashion oh yeah i mean you just have to see sort of trends of revisionism at the moment there's a lot of talk about the first world war and uh, you know in previous times it's been described as you know this great completely unnecessary tragedy you know now there's people looking at well what would have happened if, yeah i was just you know. thinking yes the other day when i was watching one of the debates mm. um would uh, oh what a lovely war mm. make such a stir as it did when i saw it in the late 60s early 70s yeah was it with joan lester wasn't yeah it? and of course you know now people are using blackadder as a reference point yeah yeah you know? so this is just to say that we have our own personal biases. I'm very aware of it. We try and yeah, see. we're trying to point them out as much as possible. But we do have biases, and one of our personal view uh, biases is to play down the idea of Irish gods and goddesses. Now we have a very good reason yeah. for it. Yeah, I mean it's partly just a, trying to escape from the massive kind of classical influence that especially came in in the 18th and 19th centuries, you know, where uh, Irish mythology was being looked at through a classical lens. Right, so if you have gods of the sea and gods yeah. of the earth and gods of the sky, then yeah. you've got to classify them in the same way exactly. with the Irish stories. Yeah. And it doesn't work. No, and we've found it much more helpful to look at these particularly as ancestor figures or as culture heroes. You know, um, and so, yeah, we've downplayed the whole gods and goddesses. So thing. even classical writers found continental and insular Celtic practices surprisingly different. Yeah. And they found it difficult to integrate them. Yeah. Because it just didn't work for them. Yeah, it just it was too different a worldview. I yeah. mean, the Romans in Britain could mm. manage to associate certain local mm. genie loci, if yeah. you like, um, like Aquasulis. Yes, exactly. And Bath and yeah. so you know, there's loads of other examples, mm, mm. or the well at Lydney, yeah. and and so forth. They they but they they had trouble with it, yeah, yeah, because it never quite fitted. No, no, there was always a, a sort of a clash, a slight misfit between the two traditions. And we have to say, we've encountered well little evidence of a creator god or goddess yeah. in the Irish stories, and, and not you know in Irish myth. Yeah, and not not the kind of cosmogenic creator that you get in other um, traditions. You know, the closest we have to it is the Dagda and the Morrigan and the way that they shape the landscape and the people. But even that's not a kind of and if, creation out of nothing. No, and as we said before, even if you take the story of the coming of the Tuatadonna mm. in Moitura, um, they what they become people mm. when they start making things. It's yeah. to do with the act of being craftspeople. Exactly, yeah. Which yeah. is a very healthy way of looking at it. I think so, yeah. The trouble is, <laughs> trouble is, if we take this text mm -hmm. at face value, yeah. here is Mananon presenting himself as a creator god yes. coming out of the unknown waters. I know. And creating this magical saviour son mm -hmm. who is going to be a hero in both worlds. Uh, yes. But he is presenting himself as a creator god. Well, again, in, in all those passages where you can read them equally as applying to the Christian tradition or to the Irish tradition, um, that would mean that that bit saying he has created the world so it's perfect would then refer to Mananon as well. Yeah, well, it bothers me a bit because I would <laughs> like Mananon. Yeah. I've always thought of him as, you know, the storyteller. Mm -hmm. Here he is posing as the one thing I don't think I want to find. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I mean, we, we, we're a bit tongue-in-cheek here, yeah. but I mean, there's lots of reasons. I mean, he may well be a shiny foreigner, a bit like Luke. Yeah, exactly. And, and definitely this kind of, you know, uh, wonderful man from over the sea, you know, I mean, and his does name. Come from over the sea. Yeah, his name, Mananon, is the person from the Isle of Man. And therefore, he may have taken on a certain aura mm. coming in, in the same yeah. way as we we clearly found Lou to do. Exactly. And just like with Lou, there are kind of other characteristics that they may have had in another country, some of which come through they to Ireland. They become particularly glittery mm. when, they, when they arrive, don't they? Oh, yes. They're very fashionable. And so, yes, it's sort of blown up, isn't mm -hmm. it? It's sort of, you know, yeah. like, like sort of, I don't know, some sort of pop star or One Direction yeah. in Australia <laughs> or something. <laughs> oh, please. I think he may have taken over some of the aspects and stories from Mither, as we've said before, and we'll yeah. probably say again. And we'll continue to say again, absolutely, yeah, that there's, you know, and that there might even be a way in which there's some of the newer stories in there as well. But that's something I think we need to come back to. And yeah, do we're, we're just feeling our way to this. Mm, mm. But the other thing I think more likely is that he's taken on godlike attributes yeah. under the influence of Tales of the Christian God. I think so. And, you know, I think that this kind of, this tale is very almost demonstrative of, of that in this sort of straddling of traditions and even straddling of tale types. Um, that because of this equivalence between Mungan and Christ and therefore Mananon and the Christian God, that kind of then, they say, oh, well, you know, if there's these equivalences, then Mananon must be so a we creator got, God. So we haven't got a process of Christianization, we've got a process of paganization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It, well, it always goes both ways. Yeah, know. I think that's what I like. Yeah. You know, I was making a joke about, hang on, I don't want to find the creator. No. <laughs> I, I, I'm certain amount, that's certain amount of tongue in cheek. Yeah. It's also certain amount is true. Yeah. But I think it's very interesting to see just how much this is a crossover. Absolutely. With both Christian and pre-Christian attributes. Yeah. And that the, there's such a deliberate process of trying to match them up, you know, to make them both valuable, which I think has always been done very well in this country. You know, that it is, it has never, I don't think, been a question of one dominating over no, the other. No, no, I don't think so. And yeah. I, I, don't get us wrong. I mean, we're, we're you know, we're, we're not deliberately pushing one viewpoint. No. Well, not well, all the time. Well, you know, <laughs> except that it's ours and therefore right, you know. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, you can't get away from that, can no. you? Uh, but, you know, it's just our observations yeah. and it's it's all based on speculation, really. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but this is a series about him, Rama. Maybe yeah. we ought to just finish this conversation with some thoughts on Bran and his journey. Yeah. Poor Bran, he got totally left out I know, this. yeah, he's kind of a, just a vessel, really, isn't he, for Mananon's prophecy, essentially. One thing we haven't mentioned mm. that you, you were talking about to me the other day was Bran's name, of course. Yeah, um, it, it's one of those things that's almost so simple you'd overlook it, and that is that Bran is the raven. You know, I'm sure we've, we've mentioned this before many times. And I've also said other Brans are available. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes, other brands are available. For instance, there's the Welsh brand. Yeah, absolutely. Who the is Bran the Blessed. Bran the Blessed, yes. And who ends up uh, as an oracular head buried at the Tower of London. Yes. Where he's still surrounded by ravens. Exactly, except these ravens now have their wings clipped so that they case. can't leave and doom the island of Britain. Thank you very much. Ravens, of course, as with many birds, including swans, we've met swans as well as oh, these ones, yeah. messengers between this world and the other world. And so, you know, Bran having that name, I think, is just a little indicator, you know, that here might be someone who can cross from one to the other and possibly even bring back knowledge, which he does in the form of the story of, of his journey. 
Um, he's also MacFevel, which just, uh, Fevel is the name of the Loch Foyle, which is up mm. in Derry. So it's kind of the Derry, uh, Donegal. Brown, the raven from Loch Foyle. Yeah, yeah. That know. sounds quite good, actually. Yeah, not bad at all. And in a way, you've also, I mean, we, you've, you've said several times during this conversation that uh, this is in some way a transitory mm. um, improv. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Both in terms of genre, in terms of you know, the the function of the Imrav itself, you know, it, it's very much an in-between one. And that, that's, I think, why we chose to start with it, because it has so much in common with those extra, and yet it has also the Imrav characteristics that we will explore further in the next episode. So leaving Bran happily in the land of women. Oh, yes, very happy man. Our next sea journey will be? It will be the Imrav of Snedgus and Macriegla. So until then... Happy sailing. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Ogilaf Nanagus Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the story archaeologists at gmail.com.